I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the first official episode of the all-new No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast series. This program, featuring stories about the origins of no-till farming by Frank Lesseter, is sponsored by Ingersoll and AgriSolutions. For more information about Ingersoll, visit them at www.ingersolltillage.com. That's I-N-G-E-R-S-O-L-L-T-I-L-L-A-G-E.com. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Founding editor of No-Till Farmer, Frank Lesseter, has intimately covered no-till farming since 1972, and in this episode, shares some of those stories in a chat with his son, Mike Lesseter. Frank discusses why he decided to leave his job and go all-in for no-till, and how the industry and the publication have changed over the years. I'm Mike Lesseter of Lesseter Media here. I get the privilege and honor to interview my dad, Frank, who's with me today for this episode. And it's going to be a different episode than most of the other ones that will follow in this series. We'll get it kicked off and get it underway. Here's a case I can say that I've known this guy my entire life. Right, and you're my favorite son, yeah. too. Okay. We have three girls plus yeah. him. But... Uh, <laughs> No-till has been part of, of the family almost from the earliest days. I was three years old when you put out the first issue of No-Till Farmer. It's been part of the family, fifth child, figurative and literally been around the home since 72 and gotten to do some father-son trips and memories around your job and reporting on no-till, going out on farm visits, interviews, and, and meetings. So this is fun for me. But first, before we get into some of the questions, there's been a lot of attention on your newest project that you've come out here in recent weeks and uh, getting a lot of attention even on Amazon reviews and from a lot of readers. Tell us a little bit about that project. Well, we did a 416-page uh, book. It's kind of the history of no-till. It goes back to the 1950s when no-till was pretty small. And when we started the magazine in uh, 1972, there were 3.2 million acres of no-till nationwide. And today it's over 100 million acres. So we've really done well. It's a book with about 50 chapters, talks about everything, talks about experiences of people in North America, people around the world. This book took forever for me to do because I would remember things I'd done 20 years or so ago. I've kind of said in the company, if anybody ever takes as long on a project as I've taken on this one, they're likely going to get fired. (laughs) Right. Well, it was worth the wait, I'll say that. (laughs) We're here today because the the book that, as it came out, got a lot of interest from, I think, people who were surprised to hear about the the story of no-till, things that they didn't realize that made lasting contributions to all of agriculture, both here and internationally. And as a result, there was support to do a, a podcast to keep the story going, and we got six months of the year already committed to before we've recorded a single session. So all you listeners out here, thanks for the support, and we're kicking off a, a podcast on no-till influencers that is going to hit your desks, your phones every couple of weeks. So tell us, Frank, about the, the very first time that you heard the term no-till. Well, it's kind of hard to remember, but uh, I was editing a livestock magazine in Chicago, 
I'd known a little about no-till, but I can't remember ever being on a farm before that. And I was looking to change jobs, and I had two or three different options and decided to come back to Milwaukee at Ryman Publications. And I've been the editor of No-Till since the very first issue in uh, November of 1972. We came back up here about August 1 of 1972. And uh, most people move up in life, get new jobs. I've been the editor of No-Till Farmer since 1972. So I guess I'm in the same rut I've always been in. <laughs> kind of like what farmers are. Farmers tend to farm and stay at the same job all the same years. But I remember once, just before I took this job, I went home into Michigan to the Centennial Farm where I'd grown up and was telling my dad that I was taking this job and he, he pretty much thought I was nuts. So we had three young kids and we we're moving back here and he didn't know what no-till was, thought I was taking a big chance on it. And I, I left him a He tried to talk you out of it? No, not really, but he just thought I was nuts. He probably knew I was stubborn and already made up my mind, but I'd left him a couple uh, brochures because uh, Chevron was marketing Paraquat at the time, which was the big chemical as it turned out in no-till. And uh, he didn't say anything. And then I came back a week or two later and he asked me where he could buy some Paraquat because uh, he wanted to try some weed control. And then later on, uh, as he retired, we rented land out to some other people and probably 200 acres of, or 150 acres of the farm got no-tilled for few years, the guy renting the land was doing it. So we've done very well. It's interesting, there, there are ag editors around that have written about farming as long as I have, but I don't know of anybody who's stayed in a specific area all these years. So it's just been fascinating to watch this grow. And I've been very proud of what we've done and I've been very proud of what American farmers have done and uh, cutting costs, cutting erosion, cutting fuel, cutting labor, everything. Mm -hmm. So you slowed Grandpa down long enough for him to hear what you were going to be doing, and shortly thereafter, he wanted to know how to get some on his farm. Right, right. We got him turned on a little bit to it. So. Yeah. What was that job interview like when you were brought up to Milwaukee to talk about this concept, and which I imagine was somewhat foreign, but what did they tell you about this and what the opportunity might be? They were going to start a magazine, and um, that's what it was about. It was right from the start. It was in central Kentucky where it got started. Harry Young at Herndon, Kentucky had pioneered it on seven-tenths of an acre in the mid-60s and had grown from there. And one of the people on the Ryman staff, Galen Morgan, had been pretty close to no-till. He had done some collateral work for Alice Chalmers, Chevron, and Dow. And uh, so he, he was pretty knowledgeable about it, but he was doing other things in there. and. Uh, we came up with the idea right away that we would charter a plane and five of us would fly down and spend two or three days in Kentucky and southern uh, Illinois. We were at the Dixon Springs Agricultural Center, which the University of Illinois had then. And a researcher called George McKibben had actually started it there, and Harry Young got the idea from him. But you go down to George McKibben's field days in August, and I mean, he's, he's trying 300 different combinations of herbicides. I mean, they, he had things where they were using five pounds of atrazine per acre, and you know, it was amazing. <clears throat> that was some of the most practical research that was ever done on no-till, and it was in the early days. So they laid out a bullish picture for no-till, and you could see it. You agreed that it was it was worth leaving a, a stable job and career. To I was looking for something different to do. I was getting kind of bored with what I was doing and needed some new challenges. And it's kind of interesting how we built a circulation on this because they went out to um, farm equipment dealers who we work with closely today and asked them for names of people who they thought might be interested in no-tillage. 
And the idea was to get maybe 30,000 names and do a magazine with 30,000 on it. But when they got all done with this, after a month and a half, two months, they had 60,000 names. So with the first few issues of No-Till, we, we mailed to 60,000 people. But the problem was the ad support was not there. No-Till Farmer in those days was free, but the ad support wasn't there. And we went maybe a year, year and a half, probably a year and a half, in which it wasn't working, we were losing money, and we converted it to a, a newsletter, which still goes on today. Today we do eight newsletters a year and uh, four magazines, so we're doing one every month. So take us back to the late 60s and early 1970s, and what was going on in ag at the time that was kind of setting the table for no-till to find its place, to find its, its groove and start to be embraced out there? Well, conservation was important. We were losing lots of soil through wind erosion and soil erosion. And one of the things that really got started with no-till in Kentucky was the opportunity to double crop because Harry Young would plant wheat in September, take that wheat off in June, or wheat or barley, take it off in June, and then immediately the same day, no-till double crop soybeans. So, and then the following year, he would do no-till corn. So he was getting three crops in two years, and that made really good economic sense to him. Uh, and it just kind of took off from there. And then farming wasn't doing great in those days. People were looking for ways to trim costs. And uh, early on, yields were equal, or they could be below what you did with conventional, but it, it caught up pretty soon to where the yields were pretty good. And actually, no-till really caught on among farmers who were innovators, who were willing to try new things. And it always amazed me in the 90s, I guess, to find out how many people were um, buying Caterpillar track tractors with, with tracks instead of wheels on them. And it finally dawned on me one day, the reason is, is that these no-tillers are innovators. They want to try new ideas. And that's what the cat tractors with tracks were. You grew up on a farm, dairy farm for the most right. part, right? Did a little bit of everything, but it was yeah. mostly dairy. So you're working as uh, editor of a livestock publication in Chicago at this time. Mm -hmm. So you came up, had to not only get yourself prepared to talk about row crop agriculture, but you had to, to get yourself up to speed on what no-till was. And it's a time where you were kind of living on the leading edge. It wasn't tremendous resource for you to, to learn at the same time that you're sharing with your readers. How did you go about bringing yourself up to speed on no-till? Well, I immediately got myself out of the office and got on some farms and went to some field days and went to university conferences. There was a fair amount of interest in no-till in those days. And uh, one of the big things was making better use of whatever available moisture, whatever rain was falling on the ground. And uh, just worked at it and got out of the office and uh, visited with farmers. I, I like to tell people that we do not have the recipe for making no-till work, but we'll give you the ingredients, then you can write your own recipe. And you could have two farmers who live across the street from one another, both very successful with no-till. And if you traded systems, they might be able to make it work and they might not. Mm -hmm. So I like to tell this story about, we'll give you the ingredients, write your own recipe. That's probably even more challenging of a role as an ag journalist where there is no set formula out there because you, you have to you have to convey that by itself and uh, early on uh, Ryman publications had a magazine called Farmwife News and they would take as many as a thousand or twelve hundred people to Hawaii for a week and uh, we made no-till part of those uh, stories and I remember one year 
in Hawaii, we probably had 300 people who were no-tilling at the time out of a bigger audience. And uh, we did a survey and we asked them what their no-till system was. And I think we came back when we gathered them all up and put them together. I think there were 70 different systems. Somebody was doing something different than somebody else. Out of these 400 people, there's like 70 mm. different systems. So there was no one way to make it work. And, you know, it's an attitude as much as it was. And then the equipment was scarce. We, like the book that I've done, there's a number of pages in there about uh, planters and drills being built in farm shops at that time because nobody was happy with what the ma manufacturers were making. Mm -hmm. And if you look at that, the real, real breakthroughs in seeding equipment was done by the short line companies. Uh, Great Plains, uh, Howard Martin at Martin Industries with uh, row cleaners and colders. And, uh, Ingersoll came up with fluted colders and ripple colders that made no-till work. Ty was, John Ty was another one, right? Tell us, um, that there, even, even the people who have been following us for a long time may not realize how and why No-Till Farmer publication was birthed here in downtown Milwaukee. Did, tell us about what that environment was like, the, the offices, how many people were there, what that, what that place was like, and that, what it was like during that launch period. Well, there were probably 30 people or so when we first started No-Till Farmer. And they, Ryman had a had Farm Wife News, which had a tremendous circulation. They had a magazine called Farm Building News that went to people who built barns and, and No-Till. And the guy who, uh, and, they, and they did some collateral work and PR work for some companies, including Seba Geige and Alice Chambers. And uh, the guy who really was the No-Till guy was a guy named Galen Morgan, who became a good friend of mine and was a mentor, and uh, he had been on Harry Young's farm where it all started probably eight or 10 times by the time I came there in 1972, but he really understood this farm, I list, or this concept. I listened to him really careful and learned a lot from him. You know, even farmers that we talk with today at the conferences, they, they're intrigued about how you put a, you know, a magazine together, and then we ask about the marketing and the advertising and the editorial direction, the coming up with story ideas. How did you do that back in those early days? And how did you find farmers that were not only uh, experimenting or, or having success with no-till, but to get in and talk about it? Well, most no-tillers were willing to talk about it. They, they thought it was a great system. Uh, we would get leads from university guys and suppliers and county extension agents. And getting leads even then was no, wasn't that tough. But I always remember a comment Daryl Smith, who was a retired field editor for Farm Journal, made to me maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And he says, I don't understand these no-tillers. They got such a good thing going. Why do they think everybody in the world needs to be doing it? And they're pushing it all the time. They're telling other farmers, you should do this, you should do this. But he says, you know, they meet with problems. Other people don't want to do it. He said, sometimes you wonder why they just don't keep it to themselves. <laughs> Well, it's kind of like uh, spreading the gospel. Yeah, right? exactly. Want, yeah, it's exactly it. what it was. It's a, it's a gospel of farming. We'll rejoin the conversation with Mike and Frank in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Ingersoll and Agri Solutions, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast series. Ingersoll specializes in seedbed solutions, Whatever seedbed challenges you have, Ingersoll can give you the right tools to get the job done. For more information, visit them at ingersolltillage.com. 
Now let's get back to our conversation with Frank as he talks about the very first issue of No-Till Farmer and some of the lessons he's learned over the years about his subscribers' expectations. Plus, stay tuned as Frank answers some listener questions about the history of No-Till. So you were the editor. You had to come up with the, the content for it. There was advertising at the time. There was marketing and circulation development. How did how did you do those things? Well, I was pretty much editor on the editor side, and the rest other people in the company had to do the other things. I wasn't publisher of magazine until we bought it ten years later. But uh, there were like five of us that went down on a private plane to Kentucky to really look at it at that time, and that was a real eye, eye opener for us. This is our first issue, it was November of 1972, 32 pages. A little thin on advertising, but- Who did advertise in that issue? Who was uh, there at the time? Ortho, which was Chevron, they were doing Paraquat at that time. Trojan Seed, a lot of old timers remember when Trojan Seed was a big player in the uh, corn market. Buffalo advertised yeah. their ridge till systems. Alice Chambers was in with two page spread. Yeah. Yeah. With one L on no-till. Yep. yep. I wanted to talk about that. If I have seen that before, it's been many, many years. Let's open up that issue, take a look at it, and, and tell us what uh, what you remember as you're flipping through this, this, and what stories were in the first issue. We're at Simpson, Illinois, George McKibben, and I talked a little bit about all the herbicide studies he did. and uh, We did a diary of our no-till tour to uh, Kentucky, which we visited uh, farmers over a couple days. We talked about watch it until you know the no-till language because no-till even today is zero-till, minimum-till, conservation-till, strip-till, vertical-till, slot planting, sod planting, mulch planting, uh, all kinds. Those terms that were used back in 72? Yeah, vertical tillage wasn't, but most of the rest of them were. We talked about this. These were the days when uh, surface fertilization were getting the job done. This is a story we did of Glover Triplett at Ohio, who is now retired in Minnesota, or Minneapolis, Mississippi. But he spent his whole career basically doing uh, no-till uh, research. And they tell the story about when he was, he was at Wooster with Ohio State, and he took his wife out to see these plots that he had put out, and they were totally weedy. And she said to him, Glover, you're going to lose your job. <laughs> but he's hung in there, and this was 50 years later or so, and he's still doing it. He was one of your uh, living legends of no-till. Yep. He came uh, to the conference a couple years yep, ago. Yep, and uh, he's, still, he's still active back at Mississippi where he grew up and uh, still doing research. And uh, there's a couple stories in here. Uh, Jim Smith was the... Uh, farm manager at the John Upstead Hospital at Butner, North Carolina, and he managed 11,000 acres. This was a mental hospital. And he used to tell the story about he was out planting one day in sod, and it was really ugly. And the guy came along and said, what are you doing? And uh, he said, I'm planting the sod. And he said, the guy didn't say anything to me, but he went up to the hospital. He asked for the general manager, and he went and talked to him. He says, you've got a crazy guy down in the field. It must be one of your patients. You better get him out of that field. <laughs> And so the general manager told Jim this story, but three, four months later, when the corn came up and looked good, the same farmer went back to that general manager and said, I think you ought to let him out. Right. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and then uh, Daryl Smith uh, worked with us at that time, who went on to uh, Farm Journal, and there's a story in him in here that he wrote about with a farmer in uh, 
Northwest Illinois, who was double cropping corn after taking off a crop of alfalfa in mm. early May. And so double cropping, even more so than wheat or barley and soybeans, has always been other crops involved. And this farmer in Illinois was already saying, I'm saving 19 tons of soil per acre with no-till because it's not running off. Do you remember some of those visits that on putting together that first issue? Oh, yeah, I do. And uh, this, this is one of the problems I had with doing the the no-till history book because I remember being on all these farms and I had trouble getting my, been on so many farms I couldn't get my arms around everything I wanted to talk about. So this, this premier issue was November of 72? Then we bought the magazine or newsletter in 1981, 1982, and my wife Pam and I, we went out on our own with it, and we've had it ever since. Well, I bet there would be a lot of people who would like to, to see this first one. There's a lot of information in this, did you say 32 pages? Yeah. Tell us about Plowboy Pete and No-Till Ned. Well, this is interesting. We started with a cartoon series, which we did for... Uh, two or three years, and there's, I think there's six or eight of these in the history book that I did. So we had No-Till Ned, who did everything right, and Plowboy Pete, who did everything wrong, and we would ask our readers to um, write the caption lines for it. And here we, here we got a picture of a combine being stuck in a hole, which would be the conventional tillage. It says Pete needs his 150 horsepower tractor for two reasons. To pull his eight bottom mobile plow and pull his combine out of the mud. Interesting story here because if you had the winning caption, we would uh, buy dinner for four at a place of your choice. And in 1972, we'd get a bill from the guy and it might be 40 or $45 for four people eating out. And later on we were doing this and it kind of led to us quitting the contest a guy from Virginia took his wife and two of his friends out and sent us a bill for 400 bucks. <laughs> this was in 1972. And that was about the time we were running out of ideas and we discontinued yeah. it. That's pretty good pay for writing a caption on a Exactly. On a right. yeah. How long did it take you to put that premiere issue together? Well, I started there on August 1 and we turned this out probably by October 10th, October 15th. It was different than those days. They were paste up key lines and using exacto knives and glue to lay everything out. And it's not like today with computers and everything, but, so it took a while. So take a, a think of a subscriber that we have here in, in 2019 who's never seen this, this issue, and tell them how, how it's the same and how it's different than the product that they're, they'll get in their mailboxes and, 2019. Well, I, I want to back up for a second because you made me think of something. And there's a there's a fellow who has been to all 26 of our national road tillage conferences named uh, Alan Brooks from Markison, Wisconsin. And it's not in here, but I think the story is in the second issue. We did a story on his dad, and Alan's picture is in this uh, story. And in fact, that would be a good one to take to the uh, no-till conference because everybody would see it. Now one's still there, mm -hmm. and he'd love it. But uh, he's he's proud of that. I've yeah. heard him talk yeah. a number of times about how he yeah. was in that early issue. Yeah. We've just got more in depth. I mean, you look back at some of these stories, and they were kind of shallow. We said the guy used fertilizer, but we didn't tell exactly where he put it or what day he put it on, or whether he mixed it with herbicides or liquid dry, and uh, whether he was broadcasting it or banding it or injecting it and uh, 
So uh, we've we've gotten really uh, well. You were learning as you went too. Exactly right. Right. Yeah, and our our editorial philosophy has always been: we want quality editorial. I like to say we'll give you the meat and potatoes. Uh, we're not going to put in the salad or the appetizer or dessert. We're just going to stick to the facts. And uh, when we go out, on a, when we go out and do a story, all of our editors. I mean, you go to, you go and do a story on a guy. And you may have 10 different ideas. Here's what he fertilizes, here's what his seeding rates are, here's what he harvests, here's when he does this. And that's not the kind of story we want to write. We want to run with seven different points. Maybe we want to run the whole story on how he, uh, how, where he uh, side dresses nitrogen and really get into the details. Not, you know, in the general story, do you side dress nitrogen? Yeah, there's 20 words on it. Well. When we do this in a whole story, it may be a thousand words that we get in there and talk about exactly where he puts it, when he places it. And if you got, you know, if you got two great ideas off a farmer, maybe it's two different stories. You maybe do hold on to one of the stories for six months and do it later. But you just got to get the in-depth because farmers are uh, ahead, ahead of everything today. And I think another part of our success is we've never thought we were smarter than any of our readers. And I've done stories on farms in all 50 states over the years, and I've never been on a farm that I didn't learn something. I've been on a few farms I didn't learn a lot, and I've been on a few farms where I saw they were doing things wrong, and I learned from that. But if you keep your eyes open and listen, you can learn something from every visit you make. Tell us about how you would realize that um, in your first issue wasn't your best work. And I know from having been around you forever that you have said, I want every issue to be better than the one before it. Right, I never want a perfect issue. I, we can come close, yeah. but I want to see something in every issue we do we could improve. So, so tell us how your subscribers, who are as loyal of a group as I've ever seen in any industry, helped, helped convey to you what they needed and how you and your team matched match that with each step moving forward. Well, these people are hard to give them information they haven't gotten someplace else because they're so far ahead of the curve on being innovators. And you just got to listen to them and somebody tries an idea that makes a good story. Somebody tries an idea that bombs. There's, maybe there's still a story there. And uh, I remember back taking a phone call from a guy out in Northern Illinois about 15 years ago. And we had done a story on why you ought to no-till. And he called me up and says, Frank, what is wrong with you? I said, what do you mean? He said, you just did this story on why you ought to no-till. Don't you realize that all your subscribers are already no-tilling? They don't have to be sold on this. Take that space and do something on fertilizer or something. Quit telling us that we need to no-till. That was a day that I woke up to the fact that he was right. And I don't think we've done a story in, on why you ought to no-till since then. Now, on our website, we got an area called No-Till 101, and we got some stories in there about why you ought to no-till. I woke up to what readers wanted from us. Yeah. Well, there's two, two observations with that. One, you have a, a loyal subscriber base that will call and tell you how they expect you to improve. Mm -hmm. And second, and probably just every bit as important, if not more so, as you listen to them. Right. 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 And I remember along about maybe the fifth or sixth national no-tillage conferences that we run, we had classroom sessions. I ran one on uh, the basics of no-till. And I, the idea was we, we get people that come to our conference who aren't no-till and they're thinking about it and everything. So we get people that haven't no-tilled. I went into the classroom and there were maybe 25 people in there. 
And none of them were first timers. They were guys I knew that had been no-telling for 25, 30 years. And I said, what are you guys doing in here? It doesn't hurt to go back to the basics. But the guys who were not no-tilling found a session that they thought would be more important to them than that one we ran on the no-till basics. Mm -hmm. So you learn from that too. And then, you know, we, we do roundtable sessions. I mean, we get up to where we do 80 of them at a time. And once in a while, you get a session that's, well, not, years ago, we would do sessions on the John Deere 750 no-till drill. And sometimes there'd be 150 people in that room. And another time, we might have a session on no-till cotton at the same time, and we don't draw a lot of people from the South that are in this, but there were three guys in that room talking about no-till comment cotton just among themselves and they thought this was the greatest session they've ever been to because there was nobody back home that was no-till and cotton like they were and once in a great while you can have a session that draws nobody and people say well does that really upset you and I say no because they picked something else that was more important to them now we may never run that session again but I've seen the time 10 years ago or so we would run a session on no-till vegetables and maybe 29 people went to it. Today we can run a session on no-till vegetables and 150 will go to it. This um, next question, so we know this because we're around it all the time. You can have a brilliant editorial product that the world never sees because you can't get it out to market or a market doesn't exist for it. So I want to take us back to when you were getting going, how you went about getting this this vision of no-till farmer, a peer group on no-till in a publication format is essentially what it is, right? Right. How you got that out to the market, how you you conveyed that to all the farmers out there who, who needed it or didn't realize they needed it yet. Well, it, it goes back to these guys being innovators. They're more than willing to look at new ideas and... Um, it just happened. I mean, people would tell somebody else, hey, there's this no-till farmer, you ought to look at it. And uh, I remember talking to a guy who came to our national no-tillage conference in the early days one day, and he said, I never knew this uh, publication had existed. Until he said, I, just three weeks ago, it was so it would have been the middle of December, he said, my wife and I are laying on, he's from Indiana, I think, if I remember right. He said, my wife and I are laying on the beach at uh, Fort Myers, Florida, and there's a guy reading a magazine next to me in a chair called No-Till Farmer. <laughs> and I asked him about it. He said, I've been no-tilling for two or three years. I don't even know anything about this. And I, the guy shared it with me. And he said, I'm calling you up. I'm coming to the National No-Tillage Conference. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there was an interest for it. We sometimes do more today, and in one of our magazines, we'll do more on no-tillage in one issue than some farm publications that do in a year's time. I think anybody that's no-tilling can find something of interest in every issue of our no-till farmer. And, uh, and you I, have to, when you're charging them money to get the information, exactly, you have to deliver Exactly. It. And another thing is, I mean, soil health today and uh, cover crops has gotten a lot of interest. And I, I think we did a cover crop story with no-till in our first or second issue. This gets, gets on my bandwagon because we're talking today about soil health and cover crops and sustainability. And our no-tillers have been doing this since 1972 or even earlier. We've been reporting on it since 1972. It's not new to us. All right, well, thank you, thank you, Frank. I appreciate the uh, chance to sit in here and talk to you and actually to take a look at that premier issue from November 1972. It's been a long time. And uh, 
proud of what you've done and, and look forward to releasing this podcast out and, and all the, the episodes that are followed. Thanks for joining us today. Shows I'm getting old. <laughs> and now for our No-Till Farmer listener questions. In your opinion, Frank, what was the most pivotal milestone that took No-Till where it is today? I'm going to answer this with two milestones. Because early on it was the fluted colder and then the ripple colder that made no-till work, where they were working in an area maybe three to four inches wide and no-tilling corn and soybeans in that area, which was in 30 or 40 inch wide rows. So there was residue all in that area except for uh, two or three inches. So fluted colders was really what got no-till started. And then later in the 80s, what really made no-till take off is when glyphosate or Roundup came on the market because this is what controlled weeds up until then, we'd use paraquat, which would kill surface weeds, but it didn't go into the soil like Roundup would and kill the weeds underneath the soil. Thanks to Frank and Mike Lesseter for sharing these stories and memories of no-till farmer history. Many of these stories can also be found in Frank's book, From Maverick to Mainstream, which is available at notillfarmer.com forward slash notillmaverick. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Ingersoll and AgriSolutions, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or at the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank and Mike Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.